Well, please uh, take a copy of the Bible and turn with me. Uh, now we're going back to the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Like I said to you last week, that uh, start, you better strap in because it was a tough passage for a number of reasons. And I suppose I should say again today, buckle up. Um, The passage before us today is going to lead us to think about uncontroversial subjects like submission, um, gender differences between men and women, the problem of domestic abuse and its relation to Peter's instruction here. And it'll even lead us to say something about the contemporary issue of transgenderism. So, yeah, buckle up. (laughs) Uh, Now, just quickly remember, Peter's taught us about our new identity in Christ as exiles in the world. And and now, in the section that we're currently working through, Peter is, is talking to us and explaining what it will mean to live as exiles in this world as we seek to follow Christ's example in a fallen world in relationships that are often far less than ideal. And so Peter is talking about real life in both the civil realm and now in the domestic realm. He he began back in chapter 2 verse 13 with how Christians should relate to the governing authorities and then how household servants, without any recourse to freedom, ought to relate to their pagan masters, and now Christian wives with husbands who do not share their faith. And the repeated exhortation connecting all of these different passages is this common exhortation, be subject. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And now, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, there's simply no way around it. People are going to balk at what Peter is saying here. Just imagine with me for a minute if we could perform a survey and ask people to read this passage and provide some feedback. Imagine some of the feedback that we might get in response to this passage. I think we'd hear things like, who does Peter think he is telling wives to submit to their husbands? And why does he spend so much time talking to women in so little time, talking to men. How, how dare Peter degrade women by telling them to be subject to their husbands? And who does he think he is telling women how to dress? How dare Peter speak of women as the weaker vessel? And who does he think he is making any distinction at all between men and women. I mean, there's just no question about it. If Peter was a contemporary, he would be canceled 
in a moment in our culture. The social media mobs would rage. But let's bring it a little closer to home and let's be honest with ourselves. It isn't just people outside of the church who struggle with a passage like this. Christians are challenged by it too for a number of reasons. You know, many of us may have questions. Well, what exactly does Peter mean when he says that wives are to submit to their husbands? Some of us may have sincere concern and questions. Well, what does Peter Peter's teaching mean in the context of a marriage where there's, where there's abuse going on. Uh, and, and we'll see, actually, I think, that Peter addresses that important issue in this very passage as we make our way through it. But to unlock the reason for this repeated exhortation, be subject, right, um, citizens, servants, wives, We need a key to understand why is Peter giving this instruction to Christians. And the key is found, if you remember, back in his teaching to household servants. In that section, Peter says that our calling is to follow Christ's example. And there he's setting forth a household servant really as a paradigm for all Christians to have our lives overwritten by the life of Christ, to have the paradigm of Christ's life be the life that we seek to conform our own to, to follow in Christ's footsteps. Every person united to Jesus, following the one who subjected himself in order to love and to serve and to save the lost. So every person united to Christ is called to participate in that pattern of Christ's self-offering service and love. And today, in our passage, we're going to see Peter apply that to both women and to men in gendered ways. Now, there's a number of objections to this passage, and many of them end up being ironic. I think one ironic objection to this teaching is, is said to, it's said to be merely a reflection of Peter's time, right? Authoritarian, patriarchal, domestic relations was the norm, and Peter is just simply parroting that. I think it's ironic because Peter's teaching is actually subversive and revolutionary in a number of ways, as I hope we'll see today. But we have to recognize that we're prone, when we hear the language of be subject, we hear a call to subjugation. We hear a call that inevitably implies inferiority, a call that limits or minimizes personal freedom. But we've got to appreciate this fact, brothers and sisters, that in Peter's teaching, the effect of it is precisely the opposite. Peter speaks in this larger section to all Christians, regardless of their social position, assuming that they are free to live for the Lord's sake. And the revolution continues because what form does that life take? 
It takes the form of humble service. Or you think of the language of Paul in Galatians, brothers do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but in love serve one another. It's a principle that Peter is applying in, in, to the, to the nitty-gritty details of our lives. Peter is making it clear that no matter who we are, no matter our social standing, that we are free to follow in Christ's steps. And that means subjecting ourselves to others to serve, love, give. And as Peter makes clear in this, this section of his letter, to even be prepared to suffer for the sake of doing what's good and right in God's sight. See, but it's no wonder that a passage like the one before us is so unappealing to people today. And, and I think part of the reason for that is a lot of folks are held captive to a notion of human freedom that is ultimately false and harmful. See, look, if, if you think freedom is basically it's living for yourself giving yourself whatever you desire, doing whatever you want, then, then yes, absolutely. Peter's teaching throughout this entire section of his letter is going to sound like nails on a chalkboard to you. But if you understand that real freedom is in fact being who God made you to be and who God saved you to be, then you'll understand that true freedom is found in following Jesus and being conformed to his image. And then the call to be subject to others for the Lord's sake is not a call to subjugation and inferiority. It is instead a call to uh, express your Christian freedom, freedom to lay down your life for the sake of others, just as Jesus freely did for you. And I want us to see that that is the calling given in this passage to both Christian men and women in different ways. So that's all to set things up. Let's turn our attention to, to read the passage first of all. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <clears throat> and you are her children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman 
as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, before we dive into this passage, let me mention to you one other ironic objection that I've often come across. Some object to this passage saying, look, Peter shows he has an agenda here in how much he has to say to women and how little he has to say to men. Now, that objection actually recognizes something that is noteworthy, that is the proportion and the order in which Peter writes. But the objection assumes something that's not right, and that is the reason why Peter does it. Remember, Peter is writing in the genre of a Greco-Roman household code, mimicking a a form of writing that was common and well-known in the culture at that time. And you remember in Greco-Roman household codes, we don't have a single existing Greco-Roman household code in which servants or wives or children are directly addressed. They are always uh, addressed indirectly through the man. Okay? So he is the center of attention and the order of the home is structured to maintain his social honor. You see what Peter then is doing here that's so striking if you set them alongside of one another, Peter's household code begins by speaking to household servants and then to wives, and then he speaks to men last and least. And in doing so, I think it is a a, a quiet subversion of how the world thinks about the position of a man within the home and how his authority is put to use. Peter's going to show us that it's not for lording it over the others, but it is in fact for the good and the honor of everyone else within the home. Okay, so as we take a close look at this passage, I want to, I want to ask you to, to, to do something for me, okay? If you're tempted after hearing the passage read, reading it yourself, if you're tempted to react negatively to Peter's teaching here, I want to ask you, just just hold your fire, okay? Hold your fire and wait till you hear what what, what we are going to strive to hear, what Peter is really saying. In these verses, Peter has, has a word for Women and a word for men. I don't have any fancy outline for you today. Those are our headings, okay? Peter's word to women, Christian women, and Peter's word to Christian men. Okay, so let's begin with the first, Peter's word to Christian wives. Uh, We need to appreciate Peter here is addressing a very practical concern. What do you do if you are a Christian in a a marriage that's, that's less than ideal? Maybe... Maybe you've become a Christian after you were already married, but your, your, your husband remains unconverted, not a follower of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you married someone that you thought was a Christian who shared your faith, but time has 
made it clear that you don't share the same devotion to Jesus Christ. Or, or maybe when you were young, you, you gave your heart to someone you shouldn't have given it to, and you find yourself in a marriage where you are devoted to following Jesus and your husband just isn't there. What do you do? How do you relate to him? How do you faithfully live for God in that less than ideal circumstance or relationship? We'll look at verse 1 to see where Peter begins. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, let's be clear about this up front. We'll come back to it. Peter here is not sanctioning oppression. He's not asking women to be doormats and to put up with anything and everything. The flip side, maybe a way to to think about this, the flip side of Peter's teaching here is not, on the one hand, wives be uh, subject to your own husbands. And then if Peter were to speak to the men, husbands command your wives. And that's that's not how it works. You remember how Paul picks this same idea up in Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church by giving himself up for her. So Peter is not setting forth and condoning a kind of authoritarian view of marriage where you have a commander and a subject. That's not what's in view here. But let's be clear about this as well. Peter is giving instruction about the form Christ-like love takes for a wife in relation to her husband, believer or not. And the basis for this is not social custom or the standards of of Greco-Roman household codes. The the basis is, is theological. So we should not think that the call to wives to be subject is just a kind of contextualizing concession, as if all Peter wants to do is make the Christian way of life fit in with the given political, social, and domestic order of the day. So basically calling Christian servants and wives to just just stay in your place. That's not what he's doing. Instead, if we're really going to appreciate this, this is what Peter is doing throughout this section. He is defining every relation in our lives by ordering our lives after the example of Christ. We follow Christ and how we relate to the governing authorities, being subject and prepared to suffer for doing good. We follow Christ in showing honor and respect to others, even when they cause us to suffer unjustly. Remember his teaching to household servants. And wives follow the pattern of Christ by being subject to their husbands, living, loving, serving for the good of another. In in other words, the, the call to be subject is not the gospel adapting to existing social order. It is the gospel shaping lives after the the pattern of Jesus' own life, regardless of the social order. Now, don't miss Peter's evangelistic concern then in, in a mixed marriage that he has in view here. Peter wants 
wives to live this way so that. See that, so that. Wives be subject to your own husbands so that. Okay, here's the purpose of Peter's instruction here. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct. And we've seen this multiple times already in this letter. Peter is concerned about how Christians relate to the unbelieving world, to unbelievers around them for the sake of the gospel. And in every relationship, both public and domestic, Peter wants us to be on mission. Okay, so however be subject is expressed within a home between a husband and wife. And please do notice that neither Peter nor Paul ever spell out in detail what that looks like. Because it is going to be expressed differently, I think, from couple to couple. It's also going to bear certain cultural marks depending on where that couple lives. And Peter and Paul leave it to the couples themselves to determine what shape it will take. But however the self-giving, other-serving nature of submission is reflected, it's very clear Peter does not simply want wives to endure passively. He, He wants them instead to be instruments of their husband's conversion and transformation through faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, this certainly is not counsel that is intended to subjugate or to to oppress. This is actually counsel for change. Peter hopes for the husband's conversion, his, his new birth, his being brought to faith in Jesus Christ, which inevitably results in a changed life. And again, we have to think about this contextually. This would have been an absolutely revolutionary idea because the language of the language of wives submitting to their husbands was common verbiage in the Greco-Roman world. But one of the things it meant in that society was that the wife along with the kids and the household servants would Embrace whatever religion or religions that the the man of the home followed. And Peter is saying to these Christian wives, it it simply cannot be. That's, That's not an option for you now that you follow Jesus. Submission can't mean that. It can't mean submission to idolatry or submission to sin. Instead, live in such a way that he comes to share in your religion. You see, it's a total reversal of the social expectation. Wives, submit to your husbands to win them without a word by your conduct. It's an incredibly subversive idea. And and notice the wisdom of Peter's counsel. You know, he's, he's saying to these Christian women who are caught in a difficult relationship, Look, you you don't have to try to first persuade with words. Instead, let your life speak first. And if we can broaden this out for a second, that's challenging for all of us, isn't it? Because we know uh, talk is cheap. 
But, you know, walking the walk and walking the walk with those who are closest to us, who we, we share our lives with, is the most difficult thing to do, isn't it? But that is our calling as Christians. So if your husband doesn't obey the word, let your life be the unspoken rhetoric that may persuade him to turn to Christ and then to begin to find his life conformed to Christ's. Now, of course, Peter's not saying that you you never open your mouth to speak about Jesus. That's not his point. But I think he is exercising some pastoral wisdom here, and he's saying, look, trying to convince your husband to embrace your faith and to follow Jesus with words alone will likely only lead to further tension in your marriage. Instead, he's saying, let your life open up a door for your witness and for your words. Let your life, your demeanor, your character, your your disposition, your attitude be a living demonstration of your newfound devotion to Christ. Let your life be a demonstration of the redeeming and transforming power of the gospel at work. Aim for the, the beauty of godliness that is seen in respectful and pure conduct. Now, just the, the mention of beauty there, that's a good transition to the next couple of verses in verses 3 and 4. Take a look at those with me. Peter says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Of course, Peter is not saying that it's, uh, that it's wrong to look nice. He's not saying, okay, here's the message, ladies, just, just give up on your appearances. It doesn't matter how you, you look because what really matters is the inner person of the heart. That, that's not what Peter is saying. But what he is saying is don't prioritize mere appearance. It, it was common in the Roman world for, for women of status to, uh, to wear these elaborate uh, hairstyles, to deck themselves out in jewelry, and to wear all manner of fine dress. And it was a way of declaring one's social status. It was a way of establishing yourself as higher and more important than, than others around you. Peter's reminding these Christian women that that kind of beauty is, is, it's it's fleeting, isn't it? It's empty. I was reading uh, John uh, Chrysostom, or Chrysostom, however you want to say it, recently on the topic of wealth and poverty. He has a series of sermons on wealth and poverty. And one of the things he says there is, wealth actually hides reality. Right? Wealth gives you the, the, the power of self-determination. And what do people often do with wealth? They seek to project the, the person that they envision themselves to be. A person of status or a person of beauty. And, and we're being reminded here that these things don't last. There's no substance to them. They don't matter in the end. And so Peter says instead, adorn yourselves with true lasting beauty. 
And you've got to ask the question, okay, what is the beauty that Peter is calling Christian women to pursue? The most simple answer is it's Jesus-likeness. Jesus-likeness. You know, the, the only personal attribute that Jesus draws attention to himself, um, draws attention to about himself in the Gospels, what it is, it's all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentleness, by the way, is not a synonym for weakness. Gentleness is actually a kind of strength. Gentleness is strength under control used for the good of others. Quiet. Quiet. Ready to listen. Deferring to another instead of insisting on one's own way. Not argumentative, not combative. It doesn't mean that you don't have a mind. It doesn't mean that you don't speak your mind. It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion about things. But Peter is saying this is the imperishable beauty of Jesus' likeness. He urges wives to adorn themselves with. Let your beauty be the likeness of Christ. And did you notice how Peter calls it a hidden beauty? Right? This kind of beauty is not a, a, uh, a mere physical enhancement. It is the hidden person of the heart that is visible to God, even if it remains invisible to those who do not have the eyes to see it. But it is always precious in God's sight. And when you think about it, Jesus displayed the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit all the way to laying down his life for us and many did not perceive the beauty of his own heart. See, that, that beauty is reflected, Peter is saying, in every Christian wife who adorns herself with a gentle and quiet spirit. And then in verses 5 and 6, in, well, let me, let me put it in contrast once again to the Greco-Roman household codes, because this is another fascinating contrast. In verses 5 and 6, when instruction is given on how wives should live, um, the instruction in Greco-Roman household codes was often reinforced with an appeal to a well-known example of some admired Greek woman from ages past. I think Peter is intentionally playing on that tradition to remind the women that they are members now of the covenant people of God, heirs of the promises of God. And so Peter appeals to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who in Genesis 18, in her own heart, refers to Abraham as her Lord. And what's really striking, and we could go off on a rabbit trail here, if you actually read the Genesis narrative of Abraham and Sarah, it's Abraham who who obeys Sarah on three occasions. In, in that narrative, and it's, it's, it's Abraham who's, who's making bad decisions, not trusting in the Lord. And so could it be that's why Peter is appealing to this particular passage for these Christian women who find themselves to men who are not living by faith? Perhaps. 
But the bigger idea here, the, the wife who takes up this calling with Sarah to reflect the hidden beauty of Christ does not stand alone and neither, ne, uh, neither fear nor be intimidated uh, in her witness because she belongs to the illustrious company of holy women of old who confidently hoped in God and submitted to their husbands. So when you cut through all of the misconceptions and the assumptions surrounding a passage like this, friends, this this really is not a complicated message. It is very wise in many ways, but it isn't complicated. Peter is saying, follow the pattern of Christ in your marriage. Live and love and serve for the good of your spouse. And let the beauty of Christ-like character open up doors for gospel words. And remember when there is a tension, an inevitable tension between a life of faith and a life of unbelief that may be hard. Remember that you are daughters of Sarah and cling to Sarah's God who declared his covenant that in one of her seed all of the nations of the world be blessed. He kept covenant with her and Sarah's son, her savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his own obedience and blood has secured salvation for us all. And so he's saying, have, have confidence in God and in the covenant kept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and see how the Lord may work in your marriage if he wills the salvation of your husband. That's Peter's word to Christian wives. Now let's turn to Peter's word to Christian husbands and men. Have a look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands. Okay, you've got to stop right there. That little word, likewise, is massively important. You've got to see what Peter is likewising. Remember, he is urging everyone to follow Christ's example, to follow in his steps, servants, wives, likewise, husbands. Okay, so if you were worried that men were somehow off the hook here, rest assured, you were wrong. Men are not off the hook from following the very same pattern as we follow in Christ's steps. So likewise, men are to live a life of humble, costly, and sacrificial obedience. And what does that look like within the home? Well, before we unpack that, it's worth saying, I think, that the word translated wife here in the ESV is actually not the typical word that's, that's used. Instead, Peter uses a more general word for female. So it's certainly possible, and I'm, I'm personally convinced of this, that Peter has in view a broader application within the home. He's speaking about how Christian men will relate to the ladies in their lives, the women in their lives. Okay, so what does following the example of Christ look like for the man within the home? And Peter says he is to live with women in an understanding way. See that in verse 7? Live with them in an understanding way. 
Now, again, this is not, this is not condescending talk. It's not, you know, the man is superior and he has to kind of stoop down to live at the level of, of, uh, of others. No, this is a call to know your wife and to know your daughters, to know them well in order that you may serve them well. It is a call to understanding, to know their heart, to know their desires, to know their concerns, their fears, so that you can love them according to knowledge. You see very practically what that would mean in terms of daily life. It means you don't run roughshod over them. It means you live and lead for their sake and not your own. It means you, if you're a wise individual, you don't make decisions unilaterally. You don't impose expectations without sympathy and compassion. You live with them in an understanding way that reflects the sacrificial service of Jesus Christ. So you see, there really is, and generally speaking, there are two ways men, men could go wrong here, right? With a kind of hard authoritarianism or abdicating, giving up, not doing anything as a man within the household. But there's really no room for tyranny or abdication. No room for abusive words and deeds for control or domineering behavior on the one hand, and no room for renouncing the call to follow Jesus' example in how he lives with his bride in an understanding way. And you do this, Peter says, live with her in an understanding way to show her honor. Again, do you, do you see how absolutely subversive Peter's teaching is here? Once again, if you go back to the, the context of Greco-Roman expectations and households, the household codes were all about securing and maintaining the honor of the man in the surrounding community. Everything was about his status and reputation But the Christian husband is called to Jesus-like service toward the women in his life. And that means living to honor them. To recognize their inherent worth. To see them as co-heirs of the grace of life. To hold them in high regard, in the highest respect possible. So you see how, once again, the man is uniquely called to follow Jesus in sacrificial service. To serve her so that she would flourish with life and be fruitful to the glory of God. The authority that he exercises is is never for himself, but for her sake, for her honor, for her good. And that means we have to recognize that the use of authority for any other reason is actually a misuse and distorts the example of Christ that men are called to emulate as husbands and fathers. And so I hope, I hope you can see then how Peter's teaching is really in a different universe 
from anyone who would argue that it sanctions the abuse of women or children and suggests that they just continue to submit to that kind of treatment. Friends, there is nothing in Scripture that teaches or even comes close to suggesting that. And I think, <coughs> I think Peter makes that actually very clear with what he goes on to say, something else he says that raises the ire of many. He says, live with her, live with them, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now that raises eyebrows when people read those words today. And we, what, what does that mean? What is Peter saying? Well, look, I'll say this up front. There are many ways my wife is stronger than I am. And I'm so thankful for that because she's often strong in ways that I am just infinitely weak. So we need to ask, what, what does Peter mean? That, what, what does he mean by weaker vessel? Well, I, I, again, I think this is unavoidable. There's a clash here between what the scriptures teach and what our culture currently teaches us. I think there's, this is a place where the Bible is directly at odds with the popular opinion in our culture right now. We are told that maleness and femaleness are merely gender constructs imposed on us. That biological sex and a person's gender do not have anything really to do with one another. In other words, that one's gender can be fluid, malleable, changeable. It's plastic in nature. And so a person born male can become female or something in between because gender exists on a spectrum today. And the idea that men and women share the same nature but have fundamental and necessary differences, well, that's just backwards and bigoted to believe or say something like that today. That's the wisdom of our world right now. And frankly, friends, it just doesn't work. It doesn't hold up to reality. This week, as I was thinking about this passage, I looked up several different articles. I saw an, uh, I saw an article about a trans gender swimmer from the University of Pennsylvania who's been shattering all kinds of records and no surprise there is raising protest. I read another article about a transgender Olympic lifter competing against women uh, who set all kinds of records and again there's understandable protest. The, uh, the Olympics, the International Olympic Committee has had to address this issue, and their current policy, I think, is that they allow trans women to compete if they have been reducing their testosterone for the last 12 months. But increasingly, female athletes and advocates of female athletes, understandably, are saying there's still an unfair advantage. No gender transition can erase biology. You see, the fact is, we all know it, but people don't want to say it today. The fact is that physiologically, men and women are not the same. Much as we might want to wish that away or med medically try to make it otherwise. We also need to face the sobering fact that statistically, women continue to be preyed upon and abused and oppressed far more than men. 
I think the fact that we struggle with Peter's vocabulary in this passage is really irrefutable evidence of our awareness of the vulnerabilities of women in society at large, and yes, sadly, within the home. But biology and experience bears out that women are indeed the weaker vessel in certain ways. That that shouldn't offend us. But in a fallen world, sadly, this, this means very often women are also the weaker vessel in the sense of of social entitlement and social empowerment and personal freedom. But Peter is saying it will be different in homes where men are following Jesus Christ. The women in their lives are not given to them for them to wait upon you, but women of dignity that you live to honor and cherish and nourish and protect and defend in order that she might be fruitful to the glory of God. And so again, this passage, it's, it's, it's often cited as creating an, a, a domestic environment in which abuse can thrive. And where people are encouraged to just shut up and stay quiet, you know, People will say, wives, submit to, to, your, to your husbands. That's your calling as the weaker vessel. Show respect and be quiet even when you're being battered. Friends, what a terrible, awful, wicked distortion of Scripture that is. A more careful reading, in fact, shows that Peter prohibits abuse in the Christian household. He calls men to honor the weaker vessel. So abuse in word or deed, abuse in any form does not honor her. It dishonors her. And so Peter's apostolic teaching prohibits it. And notice what he says. He says that men who treat the women within their home this way will not be heard by God. Why? Well, because such men are still in bondage to the ways of the world with its fleshly notions of authority and submission. They show that they do not, in fact, know God or understand the gospel, which transforms authority into the form of sacrificial service, which seeks to honor the other so that she may flourish and thrive. You see the picture that Peter and Paul are both painting when we understand what it's really about. It's a picture of how Jesus serves and honors his bride, the church, so that she may be fruitful and flourish to the glory of God. And men of the gospel, men who are following Jesus... Know that women are joint heirs of the grace of life. They are not objects to be subjugated. They are heirs with you of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are his blood-bought possession, saved to be his for all eternity. And so I I hope you can see the beauty of the picture Peter is painting for us 
and how it really does subvert worldly notions of the roles of men and women within the home. Whether, whether it's a kind of patriarchal authoritarian view or whether it's a more modern egalitarian view which wants to talk about equality in terms of sameness. Peter subverts both of those views. Instead, it's a picture of men and, the, men and women in the home following the example of Jesus in relation to each other, loving, serving, giving oneself for the other, as they both understand that they are co-heirs of the grace of life, seeking to reflect Jesus' sacrificial love in differentiated ways, in gendered ways. Because in the end, dear friends, marriage is not ultimately about us. It's about Christ and his beloved bride, the church. It's about the gospel. And so I don't know about you, but when I hear Peter's teaching, I, I, I know, I'll be the first to say, I have a long, long way to go. I fall short. I have but small beginnings of obedience where Peter calls me to follow Christ's example in relation to my wife and daughters. I need to hear afresh the call to follow Christ's example. And I simply want to ask you this morning, how, how about you? How about you men and women? Are you following in Jesus' footsteps in these ways? May it be, may it be that that our marriages would truly reflect God's purposes. And in those hard marriages where we find ourselves united to someone who does not share our faith, may God graciously use our life and quiet witness to win others to Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, the ministry of your word in our lives. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who uh, humbled himself and subjected himself to uh, the cross in order to redeem us, his bride. And we pray now that by the Spirit of Christ within us, that you would help us to answer this gospel call to follow after Jesus in his footsteps and to find true freedom in giving ourselves for the sake of others that your name might be adorned and loved and believed on in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.